Welcome to The Workplace, the radio program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work with me, N.N.D. This year, as International Women's Day and Commonwealth Day fall on the same day, Lady Colin Campbell joins me for a second time to discuss her book, People of Colour and the Royals. Lady C, welcome back to The Workplace. Let's talk now about your book people of color and the royals, but with a specific emphasis on work in the context of the book. So let's begin with a summary of the book. The book is basically about how most of the European royal families, contrary to public belief, are not purely Caucasian, that they have quite a dash of African blood, and how this came about. So if we're going to relate it to work, let's put it this way. The work was done by the women, but it was horizontal as opposed to vertical. Oh dear, this is so scandalous. (laughs) (laughs) Darling, that's how women got along until very recently. Throughout the whole of civilization until the 20th century, women actually worked primarily through men or had to do it horizontally. I mean, they ended up having a lot of power very often within the family, but in more paternalistic societies where there's not feminism, where women don't have the choice of how they're going to earn their living, they basically had to do it on the flat of their back. And that's just the way it was. And a clever woman would then hook a man and within that context, assume and develop her power. Women have done it very successfully over the millennia, whether it was, say, Catherine the Great, who was absolutely brilliant at achieving power. But let's remember how it started. She was simple little Princess Sophie von Anhalt Zerbst who was married off to the heir to the Russian throne. And he was totally mad and he was a danger to her. So she obviated the need for further danger by getting him bumped off by her lovers (laughs) and assumed the throne for herself. But that's an extreme example of the fact that until very recently, women really had very few choices. Even in my generation, even when I was growing up, we were expected to marry and to marry suitably because the husband you married would by and large give you the lifestyle. And if he didn't, you would have to create it for him and yourself. And I'm 71 now, but even 50 years ago, the fate of any well-bred young lady was to end up getting married, failing which she was stamped with the mark of Cain, which was, she was a failure, she was a spinster. That's not that long ago. And look at how things have changed now. That's a really important point you make. When we think about work, women's 
advent into the workforce outside of the home has been really only very recent. And before that, the work they did, of course, of building and maintaining families, that work wasn't really and still isn't even nowadays regarded in as high esteem as it should be. But this point you made about trying to advance yourself in society as a woman, that is a kind of work as well, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, women who married successful men, social position was all. That was their platform. I mean, my mother, all her friends, all my friends' parents, women had the only way they could ratify their existence and enhance their importance was to do it socially. It may have appeared that it was a party and pleasure, but beneath it all, it was really reaffirmation of status and also the platform by which a woman could assert herself. And it was a form of work. And those who did it very well were very successful. And those who were not good at it actually were handicapped and also they were off millstones around their husband's necks. A duty of a good wife was to get out there and boost the family. What's the reason you wrote this book, People of Colour and the Royals? I'm the person who discovered that Diana, Princess of Wales, was mixed race and that she had Indian blood. And I think I wrote it in Diana in Pratt, my first Diana book. But there were so many other revelations in it, and I think the time wasn't quite right. And people didn't really focus upon it. But about five or however many years ago, the Indians discovered, and they even got Prince William to give blood for a mitochondrial test. And sure enough, William and Harry have Indian blood. So that's really what started it. Then when I wrote that, several people said to me, well, you know, Queen Charlotte was mixed race. And I know various members who are descendants of Pushkin, intermarried into all of the grandest families. And Pushkin, of course, was the descendant of a Chadian slave called Hannibal. So I knew that there were all of these, and some of whom I'm friendly with, mixed race people who are, they're regarded as white. They look as white as anybody who is as purely white as it's possible to be, because remember, everybody came from Africa originally. So we need to remember that so that when people come up with their nonsense about one drop means that everybody's black, that means everybody in the whole world is black. (laughs) Don't let the extremists hear you with that. You know, this really riles them. I'm hoping they'll hear me. I'm hoping they'll hear me because I love the fact that there they are preaching this rubbish when everybody is descended from what's known scientifically as Black Adam and Black Eve. But putting that aside, I then became aware that the royal's heritage was a lot more mixed race than was popularly understood. And of course, I'm Jamaican. So I come from a world where you have every single color of the rainbow. Every family has 
well, let me rephrase that. Every white family has from lily white to fairly dark and everything mixed up in between. So I come from a really very integrated world. I did not actually understand that there was a difference in color, even though I suppose I saw it until I was eight years old. To me, everybody was just a person. And there was an incident that happened when I was eight that made me realize that there was something significant about the differences in color. But until then, I was completely oblivious to it, as are, I think, most Jamaicans, at least Jamaican children. So I thought it's a fascinating subject. And being Jamaican, it had greater appeal to me, I suppose, than it would have. Had I been English, I might have thought. But being Jamaican, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And let me see what I can learn about it. And I did. And I found it a fascinating subject and very illuminating. Because one of the things I discovered when I was doing my research was that in Tudor England, there were Black people working very successfully, intermarrying, absorbed into the white world, in quotes. And I thought, wow, you know, at what point did this whole awful color prejudice start? And when I was doing my research, I realized it was really a socioeconomic phenomenon linked to slavery and the dehumanizing of the slaves. And that's when the huge problems started and when color prejudice became a phenomenon that hadn't existed before. And I think we're reverting back to Tudor times when it doesn't matter who you are, what the color of your skin is, you know, you're a good cobbler, cobble shoes. You like somebody, they like you, you marry, you have children, everybody is absorbed. I think we're returning to a blended world. The message I got from my research was that before the socioeconomic aspects kicked in, England, and to a large extent, I think much of Europe as well, we lived in a world where people were absorbed and everything blended in much more naturally than it did thereafter. And there wasn't the exclusionary aspects which they became. And I think we're getting back to that. And I think that's a really great thing. And so I thought I'd write the book and show people that even the pristine royals actually are mixed race and they have a lot of African blood in them. Because, of course, unlike most families, royals intermarry. So where you would say have had Madrigana of Pharaoh on one family tree, if it had been an aristocrat or an ordinary person, with the royals, she will come up six times, 10 times, 20 times, depending on the generational difference, 30 times in one family tree. So that one dash is amplified tremendously as a result of intermarriage. I'm quite familiar with this theory you have set out about the genesis of color prejudice. I just want to say here, we don't have time to go into it. I don't agree with that as the explanation, but I just want to put that out there. And secondly, when you were talking about Jamaica and how you were colorblind, quote unquote, as a child, I understand what you mean, because this is one of the legacies of empire, that what you describe there in Jamaica is actually a Caribbean experience. 
So coming out of the experience of the transatlantic slave trade, which was then followed by indentureship of the Chinese and the Indians to the Caribbean. All of us in the islands, we are a melting pot. And how you mm. described your family in Jamaica, that would be the experience throughout the Caribbean. Okay, I also want to know what you hope the book will accomplish. What's your hope in writing the book? My hope is that the book will inform and advance the cause of inclusiveness, if only slightly, because I think it's going to be very difficult for dyed-in-the-wool racists to say, oh, we are superior to X, Y, and Z, when all of the European royals who are regarded as superior to them. <laughs> so you can't condemn one segment of the population and not that which also now is identified as sharing a heritage. And also it's interesting to discover that our, you know, what we thought of as one scenario has turned out to be something entirely different. I like the unexpected, <laughs> uh, especially when it's accurate. <laughs> So I'll just read here from the front cover flap of the book, which says it is a work which she hopes will go some way to healing the divisions of the past and consolidating the unity of the present into an even more cohesive future. Positive words, those. Yeah, and I'm hoping it will. I also was curious about when you say people of color, what's your definition of that? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Because, of course, I think what people of colour means at the moment is not necessarily what it meant 10 years ago and maybe what it won't mean in five years from now. I suppose it means people who have a degree of obvious mixed racedness about them. I personally don't like the term. I personally prefer to never use the term. But since it's the term that we are condemned to use at the moment, I have very little choice if I wish to convey a thought, but to fall into line with the vernacular. But I suppose that's, you know, it means people who have a degree of mixed racedness about. But then, as I say, if you go back far enough, everybody has a degree of mixed racism. So let's look at work specifically in the context of the book. I was very intrigued by what you set out regarding, for example, the place of the Blackamoors and the uniform they would wear and that it was an indication of status and so on. Tell us a bit about that in the book. Yes, in the primarily 18th century, Blackamoors were much treasured household staff. And they were dressed to the nines and they were actually, to a large extent, superior servants in a day and age when there was very little choice. You either starved or served or went into business. Very few people went into business or owned great estates or even small estates or were farmers. That was a small percentage of the population. But most people either worked on the land or were in service. The pre-industrial society and blackamoors were at the absolute top of the heap. And they were dressed to the nines. They were like Angelina Jolie being tarted up to go on the red carpet for an Oscar ceremony. 
and they conveyed the message of status and they were very privileged servants within the household. And I find it interesting that their status has recently been flipped into something it wasn't. And I also find it really interesting that Moretti Veneziano, which were the brooches of high-born Blacks that were dressed in their finery that are called Blackmores, but they're really Moretti Veneziano. They were created in the days when Venice was one of the great trading states and had great links with North Africa. And it was a sign of racial inclusivity. It was a sign of, we are a part of this great trading structure. And it was the absolute opposite of the message that people nowadays sometimes think it conveys. I just find it interesting to see how with the passage of time, perceptions change and ignorance kicks in in sometimes a very destructive way. Let's talk about work and the monarchy in the 21st century and this idea of the concept of the working royal, quote-unquote. So there are some people who think turning up and cutting a ribbon is not work. In the days of empire, when people were pushing sugar mills from sunup to sundown, that was work. So what are your reflections on this? I remember, actually, when the king crops would have to be cut. So you most likely don't because it's all mechanized because you're too young. But in my day, I remember when sugarcane needed to be cut and that was hard work. But sugarcane is not cut every day of the year. <laughs> sugarcane has one or two seasons per annum. So if you look at it from that point of view, it was very labor intensive for a short while. And I'm not trying to say it wasn't terribly hard work, but I'm just saying it wasn't 365 days a year. And that is hard work. But does somebody who is in an office or on an assembly line think that they're not working because they're not cutting sugar cane? Do they think that what they're doing isn't work or do they recognize that it's work and that there is a discipline to doing work whether it's sedentary or manual labor and i'll tell you because i have a slight aspect of the ribbon cutting aspect to my life and i can tell you something you may think it's a pleasure and that we're tripping when we do it. No, we're not tripping. It is work and it's work that needs to be well executed. You need to remember that you are there to perform a function and make everybody else feel good and important. It is a form of work that appears to be not work, but is. And also much of social life, whether it is the diplomatic world, corporate socializing, royal socializing, it is networking. Let's remember the second part of that word, work. It is work. When the royals go to a dinner and they are on duty, they are working. 
They have to be nice to everybody, no matter how they feel. They are not allowed to complain. They are there to perform a function and they do it. It is work. It's a different form of work. And ironically enough, as we enter into a robotized age, which we will very shortly, where nobody will ever need to cut sugar cane again, and we might not even ever need to get ourselves a glass of water because we can just use Alexa to get the robot to bring the water for us. But we'll still have to drink it, however, until we manage to sort that aspect of labor out. You will discover that artists, artism, artistry, artisanship, and social aspects of life will become more important and will become more validly work, just as how what you and I are doing now is work, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Well, exactly. But we're not cutting sugar cane. (laughs) (laughs) Or or pushing the sugar mill. (laughs) Finally, to close, any thoughts on Mexit? And what has come into the discourse recently is this idea of public service versus service or philanthropy. Any thoughts to share on that? Yes, I am delighted to share my thoughts on that. I think what has come to light in the whole Mexit situation is the difference between, and there are significant differences, between charity work, philanthropy, and public service. The royal family are all public servants who, in return for a degree of privilege, but a tremendous degree of discipline and restriction, embody aspects of the national life and, on a daily basis, enact roles that are basically allocated to them by custom, usage, contemporary needs. They are effectively functioning within a very narrow parameter, and they are very happy to function within those bounds. And they understand that what they are doing is because they are embodying the nation, and they are not to benefit financially from their service. Public service, when you are a royal, means you are not allowed to monetize. Even if you are a non-royal public servant, like say a civil servant, again, you have various restrictions which forbid you from doing certain things. You need to, as a public servant, be not only purer than pure, but seen to be purer than pure. You cannot monetize. As a private individual, and that is whether you are an ordinary aristocrat, multimillionaires, billionaires, billionaire, whatever, you or, will... Or Jane, or John or Jane do, okay? Let's or not... John or... Yes, absolutely. Or John, <laughs> or, John or, or John and Jane do because an awful lot of people do charity work that have no money. They are giving back to society. They are making a personal contribution to society. If they wish to monetize, that denigrates the gift, the altruism of their endeavor. However, they can get away with it, of course, they are private individuals. But if 
they are too flagrant about it, they will usually destroy their charity and they will certainly destroy their reputation. Philanthropy, which is basically an American concept, is effectively a massive tax weed where under the guise of giving to the public or doing worthy endeavors, very rich people set up enterprises, foundations, whatever word you want to use to call them, that give them control over their money, access to their money and significant tax breaks in return for which they might dole out 5% and swipe the 95% for themselves. It is basically a massive tax wheeze. It is in some ways almost a con, but again, they can do that because it's an American concept and it's run by American multimillionaires and billionaires, many of whom have great PR representation. It has gained a degree of kudos that really it doesn't warrant. Or to put it another way, Everybody focuses on the 5% of good that they're doing. And I'm not denigrating the good. If it's good, it's good. I don't care if they keep their 95%, as long as they're doing the 5%. But none of that is public service because the individuals benefit and the individuals by benefiting are actually monetizing and they are personally benefiting financially and that is not public service and Mexit has thrown up into stark relief the fact that working royals in quotes as they are now being called are not allowed to poison the pond of public service by polluting it with money, with earning megabucks, or even little bucks. If you are a working royal, you are very restricted as to what you can do, and rightly so too. I take your point about basically it's like a tax break, and you rightly said you don't want to denigrate it, nor do I, because one thing to look at with this American concept is, yes, of course, the philanthropists, we know it's a tax break for them or whatever is the monetary advantage they are getting. However, the fact that they are using their wealth and power to do some good is to be commended because there are others who have the wealth and power and they just buy bigger and bigger yachts, bigger and bigger private jets. So philanthropy should be appreciated. I agree with you because, of course, I was brought up in a world where if you had privileges, there were commensurate responsibilities societally. My mother, for many years, was the vice president of the Salvation Army in Jamaica, which is the leading charity in Jamaica. And I would not have said that my mother was the most wonderful human being on earth, but she certainly understood that she had a duty to society generally. And when I was younger, I used to do a lot of charity work in the early 90s. I was number three on the top 40 list of the Sunday Express investigation to the top 40 fundraisers in this country, charity fundraisers 
decisions on pink. So I think everybody with any background knows that if you have privileges, you need to give back to society and you need to take care of those that are less fortunate than yourself. And it's not up to the government alone. It's up to the individual to do their bit as well. And this is an American version that encourages people to do it. But I would actually say that in my experience, most of the newly rich that I run across very quickly, once they start to mix with the more established families, very quickly understand that if they are going to be a comfortable fit in our work, they need to do their bit as well. And I will close on an interesting note. Do you know that Kamala Harris's father was an Issa scholar? The Issas are a very well-known Jamaican family. They own hotels throughout the West Indies. And old Abe Issa, who I knew, I mean, he's dead many years now, but old Abisa and his brother Joe created something called the Issa Scholarship, which is rarely like the Rhodes Scholarship, but it's the Jamaican version of it. And Kamala Harris's father, that's how he got his break in life. He was an Issa Scholar. So even in Jamaica, families like ours always knew when you've prospered, you need to share your prosperity with those who don't have it. Life is about mutuality. It's about, if I can give you a leg up, I should give you a leg up. And if I can't give it to you financially, I should be able to give it to you actually. Cooperativeness. These are lessons that everybody in life needs to learn. And that's it for today's episode of The Workplace. I was speaking with Lady Colin Campbell about her book, People of Colour and the Royals. And thank you for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure being in your company. Till next time, keep finding new and better ways to keep working.